Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning in with us. Today we have, I, I mean, I've interviewed some fascinating people, but I, I must say Khalid Abdul Qadir yeah. is easily one of my most fascinating interviews. I've been so intrigued by, you know, just learning about your life, Khalid, and, and and thanks so much for being on Spirituality Adventures. Thank you. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Yeah. So just, just to let you know, Khalid has an amazing family background. We're going to talk about that. He's, he was in the Navy military career. He's a writer, director, yep. uh, highly educated guy just uh amazing amazing life journey so um let's jump into it okay <laughs> so tell us first of all where did you where were you born where did you grow up tell us a little bit about your family background so i was born in wichita kansas oh me too really yeah wesley medical center i was uh, uh saint what did they call it uh saint francis hospital i think oh, okay i think it's still yeah. there yeah yeah i think it's a mental health ward now oh really <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 i was born so in uh appropriate for my birth and appropriate for me now so anyway <laughs> yeah anyway. um yeah born in wichita kansas um what high school did you go to or did you go to high school in wichita no i i oh, went you? to i went to three high schools actually okay yeah so uh born in wichita but we moved to kansas city when i was young uh my mother uh came down with breast cancer and uh, she passed while we were living here. Uh, I think I was three years old. Mm -hmm. And then from there, there was a lot of movement. Okay. But by the time I got to high school, I started in St. Louis. I did uh freshman, sophomore year there. I came back to Kansas city, did half of my junior year at Ruskin. Then I went back to St. Louis, finished my junior year. And then my senior year, I moved to Norman and went to Norman, Oklahoma, Norman high. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you were around my my dad graduated from wichita north oh, okay back in the 50s you know wow, so yeah. anyway that's why i was <laughs> i was wondering but no gosh so i don't does ruskin still exist yeah does it i think so yeah okay <laughs> which one closed the the one there was one near ruskin that closed one of the high schools ah anyway i forgot yeah yeah was it hickman mills yeah hickman mills oh, okay i thought is I hickman heard mills closed i think it is yeah. I thought I heard something I think it about is. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hickman Mills. Well, interesting. Um, so, um, what did your what did your dad do? Uh, now, well, when you were growing <laughs> up, uh, he was actually he was a a, a pretty high level uh, manager at AT and T. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he worked at AT and T. He worked here um, in Kansas City, mm -hmm. and then when AT and T split. You know, in AT and T and Southwestern Bell, um, he got sent to man an office in Atlanta. <clears throat> okay, and so we lived right outside of uh, 
we lived in Kennesaw, Georgia, um, not too far away from Atlanta. And I've been, been, been I there? went to rehab right near there. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So not the best <laughs> memories of my life anyway, but anyway, yeah, no. Yeah. But yeah, he, huh. um, you know, he was working there and then, you know, I remember, you know, he just quit. You know what I mean? He, uh, you know, my dad went through like ebbs and flows of, uh, being really, observant of his faith <clears throat> and then you know like falling out of it and mm -hmm. completely out of it okay and so um he went into one of those observation periods i guess i can call it and he just walked away from the corporate life and i actually still have like the document from at&t where the supervisor like typed up why they're letting him go <clears throat> and it says like he he told him he was leaving they were like, we'll give you a year paid. You go do whatever you need to do and then come back. He was like, I'll take the year paid, but I ain't coming back. Mm. And then he didn't return. So they terminated him. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah. So that that's what happened. What did he do after that? We moved from Kennesaw, Georgia. We were living in a, um, a, what used to be a plantation home, <clears throat> six bedrooms, driveway was a quarter mile long. We had 80 pine trees in the front yard alone. And we moved from that to a dilapidated uh, multifamily unit in Oklahoma City. Um, and we became part of an Islamic community there in Oklahoma. Okay. And, you know, no furniture. So we went from, I guess you could call it wealthy or somewhat well off <clears throat> to then, you know, not having any furniture, sleeping on the floor in Oklahoma city. Yeah. Yeah. So was your dad, um, Muslim growing up himself? Did no. he grow up in a Muslim family? No. So no? He, he converted to Islam. He, um, <clears throat> so is Abdul Qadir your, your dad's converted name? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what was I, his name prior to that? Melvin Lattimore. Okay. Yeah. I, my first name's always been Khalid. My last name was Lattimore though. Okay. And uh, he changed my name in 1989. All right. In Cobb County, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. So, so now you're black and Muslim. Right. Right. right you know right, what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, he, uh, you know, he, he dabbled with the idea of Islam, um, which, you know, it, it spread through the African-American community right. in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. It, it, it actually, it was really prominent on the East Coast because that's where a lot, most of the Arabs had really settled in the uh, early 1900s. Um, and, you know, a lot of African-Americans that were disenfranchised or upset with the conditions, you know, they were looking for anything that wasn't white and wasn't Christian. Right. And so Islam just happened to be yeah. that. It served that purpose. Right, so, right, yeah. You know, I've read several biographies on Malcolm X, mm -hmm. which, are, which is fascinating. I think anybody should read a biography on him. Absolutely. It's a fascinating life. And then of course, you know, Hamalad Ali and, you know, I mean, yeah. that it was a huge black Muslim movement in, in America. Right. And, uh, and, and most of them weren't, you know, they weren't not like they were, they were just took a different approach to civil rights than say Martin Luther King Jr. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And so my dad was up in that, you know, he, 
he was a Black Panther. He was down with the Nation of Islam. Uh, he had an opportunity to meet Malcolm X one time at a seminar mm. and got to, you know, shake a hand and mm -hmm. say something to him. Uh, and it was after Malcolm X had returned uh, from Mecca. Right. And shortly before he died. And so uh, he's talked about what that, you know, 40 second conversation was. But that 40 second conversation really changed it changed his uh, approach to Islam. Okay. Yeah. So that's when he also got off of like the nation Islam thing and started looking for something that was more orthodox, I guess you could say mm -hmm. traditional right. uh, Arab based mm -hmm. uh, Islam. Sunni, right. Sunni. Yeah. For people who've known me for a long years um, and especially from my vineyard church years, they, people wouldn't remember that I worked at the, you know, I went to the national prayer breakfast and helped, helped host the Middle East suite mm. for the National Prayer Breakfast. And we brought in, we brought in some, some Jewish uh, leaders and businessmen, but a lot of Arab Muslims. We probably had almost 100 Arab Muslims coming into the National Prayer Breakfast, and we'd be interacting with the Muslim. These are mostly businessmen, but some imams, mm -hmm. and, um, which is kind of like a pastor. Right. for the Muslim world, for those, yep. you know, and uh, fascinating. <clears throat> I've made some great friends. I've traveled in the Middle East. I've been to Lebanon, Syria, um, Jordan, Palestine, Egypt. I've uh, been to um, the, uh, oh, crud, what's the big, what do they call it? The Vegas of the Middle East. Um, I was going to say Lebanon, but trying to, Dubai. Uh, you United, United UAE Air, Air, Arab uh, I don't, yeah yeah United Arab Emirates yeah there we go uh, and the capital which is the they call it the Vegas of the Middle East yeah but they, <laughs> they got the tallest building in the world there you uh -huh. know, Khalifa yeah deal anyway yeah. Abu Dhabi yeah yeah I've been there yeah. so anyway interesting stuff so tell us about what happened with your with your dad and kind of then how that affected you and your journey yeah so. Um, in high school, uh, you know, the reason I got to moving around so much was because my dad was going through one of those periods where he wasn't on the faith thing. You know, he was out there and, uh, you know, bad habits. And, um, so I left St. Louis and I moved to Kansas city to live with my aunt and he moved from St. Louis to Norman, Oklahoma to get back with a, uh, an Islamic community that he was familiar with. And so once I moved back to St. Louis, he wasn't happy about that because St. Louis is is a treacherous place if anybody doesn't know about it. Um, so he came back and- Were you East St. Louis? We Well, I, we actually lived right downtown. So, okay. you know, yeah. not too far from East St. Louis, yeah. right there on the river. So okay. um, he moved back or he, he came back to St. Louis and he asked me to move to Norman. And I didn't want to go, you know, I was going to school. I was happy. Uh, and if you didn't know, St. Louis had a desegregation program, you know, when I was in high school. And so even though I lived in the city, I was bused to the suburbs to go to high school. And so um, I didn't want to go. And he said, all right, if you just, just come visit Norman for three days and then make your decision. I was like, okay. So I went to visit. He knew what he was doing. He took me to the high school 
Norman High and I saw the football stadium and this is Oklahoma football, six A, you know, it's a different world. Mm-hmm. And uh I was sold then because that's what I was trying to be was a football player. Okay. Yep. So left St. Louis for the second time, moved to Norman, Oklahoma. Um we lived like right down the street from Oklahoma University's football stadium. I think the intersection is Lindsay and Jenkins. It's like right on the corner. And uh yeah, and we attended the mosque there, and it was a pretty big mosque. Uh, I think they had, they probably had at least four or five hundred uh, regular uh, members, and there was an individual that I met shortly after I arrived there. We knew him as Shaquille, Shaquille, and later on, you know, we found out that his name was Zacharias Musawi. Uh, so what ended up happening was so just for the audience who doesn't know who that is. Oh, so Zacharias Musawe is the twentieth hijacker. He's the only man alive who's actually charged with the crime of nine eleven. Mm-hmm. So the first time I met this guy, I was seventeen. I think I just turned seventeen, mm-hmm. and um, he immediately would criticize me, you know, about everything. You know, I mean, when he heard that I was playing football and. You know, I was I I was living like a double life at the time because here I am at this huge high school. You know, I'm new. I'm a first year senior, but I come in. I take the starting running back position. Uh, I'm extremely popular. You know, I have girls, drugs, doing everything, but at the same time, I'm at the mosque you know, every day trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's a small town. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, so he, he used to just, you know, point that out all the time. Cause I guess he was aware. Masawi. Yeah. Masawi, I'm sure he was aware and yeah. I'm sure other people were too, but I guess they just left me alone, but he would, he would criticize me all the time. So we had, he was a part of your mosque. Yeah. Yep. And he, when you say he was the 20th, Mm-hmm. What does that mean? The tw- that's that's just what what the FBI ended up, or I guess he, the, the he was, media ended up deeming yeah. him that. Okay, but I guess there were nineteen, and then he was a twentieth. Definitely one. had an involvement with it, though. Is that right? Well, you know what? I'm gonna tell you the truth. So, the FBI detained Musawi in August of 2001. What? 2001. Okay. Yeah, it was a month before. 9-11 even happened. Okay. Um, and when I first moved to Norman, the first time I seen the guy, me and my dad were sitting in the mosque and he comes walking in and my dad was like, you see that guy right there? I'm like, yeah. He was like, I think he's an FBI agent. <laughs> that, yeah. That was wow. almost, yeah, that was a year and a half before 9-11 interesting yeah so it was a lot of you know it was a lot of cloak and dagger yeah. and all kinds of stuff going on interesting yeah wow yeah so 9-11 happens um there was a uh a guy named hussein alatas who the three of us we lived together me my dad hussein and he was about 22 years old he was a student at oklahoma university um but then my dad wanted to get remarried, so Hussein had to move out. And he didn't have nowhere to move, so Musawi offered for Hussein to move in to his place. And so um, 
when the FBI detained Musawe, they detained uh, Hussein as well. And so my dad was in contact with Hussein's family and they wanted him to help get Hussein out of jail or from being held or whatever. And so my dad went to inquire about that. And then that's where the FBI was like, oh, yeah, you you already have a a colorful black uh, background. And so the fact that, you know, you're coming to see about this guy, there's something there. Mm. And um, after 9-11 happened, we dealt with the FBI on a daily basis for like a month. You know, they would come meet us. They'd be like, have you ever had any conversations about this? You know, asking us all these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk and it was, it was uh, very cordial. You know, they even, you know, they bought us lunch one time. You know, it wasn't a, wasn't a problem. It wasn't until a month later in October where my dad did a a news segment live on TV and he said that uh, 9-11 was an inside job. And that night, our relationship with the FBI changed. Hmm. Yeah. So they detained him as a material witness to testify against Musawi. That's what he was detained for. Okay. Um, and then after he testified, then they also charged him with sedition and levy war against the United States. Your dad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, bombing conspiracy. Uh, they sought the death penalty and he beat the case with a public defender. Um, but then they, they brought him back to Oklahoma and they charged him as a felon in possession of firearms. And so mm. he ended up serving a two year sentence for that. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So how'd that affect your world, your life? Oh, man. Shoo. Man. So, you know, like I said. So you're I, a football star yeah. at, the, at the big 6A high school in Norman, <laughs> Oklahoma. Yeah. Probably surrounded by a lot of white folks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> now your dad is. Yeah. 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 So what, what, what happens in Khalid's life at this juncture? Well, my, my brother, you know, Muhammad was also a football player. And he was he was so good at what he did playing football that I was being offered scholarships because of him. They so, figured the genetics are good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pittsburgh State. Oh yeah. Pittsburgh State came sure. down to, to visit me. They offered me a full ride. The gorillas. The gorillas. Uh-huh. They offered me a full <laughs> ride, and they at that meeting they said nothing about me. They mm. only talked about my brother. Mm. Um, so I was being heavily recruited. But my dad wanted me to go to uh, Senegal, West Africa, and study Quran. He wanted me to be a hafiz, you know, where you yeah. memorize the Quran from front to back. And so my whole senior year, I'm how, like. How do you say that? Hafiz. Hafiz? I always yeah. said hafiz, but is that <laughs> hafiz? Hafiz, yeah. Hafiz, okay. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm struggling with this my entire senior year because, like, you know, my brother's this big college football star. That's my dream was to play football. I'm successful playing football. I'm getting recruited. And my dad is asking me to like devote my life to Islam. You know what I mean? And so uh, I ended up agreeing to it shortly before graduation. 
I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to turn down all the scholarships. I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going to walk away from all the cheerleaders and everything, you know, that I was involved with uh, and devote my life to that. So I turned down all the, the scholarships um, and I was supposed to start. I was going to go. I was going to do my first semester uh, college. And then the following year, I was going to travel to Senegal. And um, but September happened and changed mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, so. My dad was removed out of the house by the feds. And as I said, my mother died when I was young. So I was just by myself. Mm. Yeah. You're 17. I just turned 18. 18? So I turned 18, eight days. My birthday was on the third. So eight days before nine 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, it was weird to, to see because it was like the entire community split where like half the people, you know, became like, very aggressive towards me you know this is oklahoma now mm-hmm. you know what i mean and then the other half they were like uh i don't know it was like a it was like the underground railroad you know what i mean like i had people who would like you know leave food on my porch you know i would be out somewhere and like you know somebody would come up behind me and they'd be like even people i didn't know mm-hmm. but they they people knew me because i was playing football in this town yeah and they'd be like, hey, I know I know your father didn't have anything to do with that. If you need anything, you know, call this number. Okay. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Mm. I I got a job at the um at the uh, PetSmart. Okay. Yeah. Uh cleaning the animal cages. And, you know, the guy who hired me, you know, he was a real, you know, freedom fighter, I guess. You know, he uh he didn't want to pay me, you know, he wanted to pay me cash. You know, he would leave the door open. I would come in at night. Hmm. You know, I guess I guess he felt like he was really uh, helping me because a lot of people felt like I was, you know, being because I kind of just got accused as a result of what was happening to my dad. Yeah, like guilty by association. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, if your dad's a terrorist, you are exactly. Yeah, yeah, and so I I was attacked twice. So I I was attacked the first time. It was before my dad was detained and uh, I got jumped by a group of people. And after that happened, that's when my dad armed, you know, he had a pistol or two beforehand. But after that, he was like, you know, this is like, we, we, we could be, we could be killed as a result of the situation. And so, you know, it was really like we had weapons by the, by each window. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and that's what the feds ended up coming in, and they were like, "See, yeah, he's a terrorist. Look at all these guns in here." <clears throat> but he loaded up like that because I had almost gotten beat to death, you know right. what I mean? Um, and then I got jumped a second time by some people I knew, some people I went to went to high school with. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and wow. that that was you know, and my dad was removed by then and and that moment was when i really realized that you know my world was was over or mm. different you know yeah. what i mean yeah interesting mm-hmm. you know it's interesting i <clears throat> i was you know starting vineyard 
church and we'd met in a middle school um, not too far from where we're doing this interview. Mm-hmm. And we had we'd bought land and built a new building up here on 169 up towards Smithville, still in Kansas City, Missouri. And we had our grand opening Sunday in this new facility um, the Sunday after 9-11. So we'd, we'd sent out a grand opening mailer, invited the whole Northland to our new church, you know. not uh, Obviously, the mailers hit, you know, we sent those out way before 9-11, but they were hitting people's mailbox almost exactly like that Monday, you know, 9-11 was a Tuesday, Wednesday, and then our, serv- our opening, our grand opening was the next Sunday. So yeah. we went from 400 to 800 people in one week. Wow. People showed up at church like crazy after 9-11. And um, and I had already been working in the Middle East with Arab Muslims. Yeah. So I had two different people into my church to talk about loving Muslims. You know, like in a mostly white <laughs> Northland, Kansas City yeah. church. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How'd that go? <laughs> yeah. You know, but, well, you know, I would say like, well, hey, if you're a Jesus follower, you know, Jesus said, well, let's just say Muslims are enemies. And I didn't want to, you know, necessarily say that, but I said, let's right. say even if they were, mm-hmm. then what are we supposed to do if we're followers of Jesus? We're supposed to love our enemies, right? So yeah. Yeah, that's how I played it. You uh-huh. know? <laughs> and then and me and a buddy went down to one of the local mosques and offered to just serve and clean up and just wanted to show our love for them yeah you know, down in there's there was one down in it was the only one i could find because there there isn't one in the northland they're trying really? to get one built up here but um at the time this was you know 9 11 it was there's one down by bannister what the old bannister mall which isn't there anymore either but mm-hmm. uh at any rate we went down there and they were having a, a conference on holy jihad trying to explain their people yeah know, and I think they were more of a progressive Muslim thing. So they were not, you know, they were not militant Muslims. Yeah. And um, it was so fascinating. At first, I think they thought we were coming there to bomb the place or something. But then yeah. then they were like, they realized we were had a humble heart. And <laughs> mm-hmm. it was a pretty powerful experience. They were super kind. As, you know, if you've traveled in the Arab Muslim world, you, you know, the hospitality, Muslim yeah. hospitality is top notch. You yeah. Know? some of the kindest people I've ever met. Right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, yeah. that was, that was kind of my nine 11 world. <laughs> wow. Quite different from yours. Yeah. yeah very different. <laughs> you know, I, I got to the point, you know, uh, where, you know, I, I wouldn't leave the house. I, I would wake up on my bed to the, the sunlight, like passing through my blinds. And I would lay there until I went to sleep and the sun was going down. Yeah. Just fear. Yeah. And yeah. I was just completely, in a in a in a twilight zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, take yeah. us from there. Yeah. Okay. So w- once the once the lights and the uh, you know the electricity and the water went off <laughs> in the house, yeah, I didn't know nothing about paying bills. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I joined the military. I joined the military. What was your thought? You know, you what? joined an American military. Yep. So I um, I used to uh, there was a gas station. Uh, near my house and I saw that's where I was getting anything I wanted to eat it was pretty much just candy and stuff and um, the, it was in a like a strip mall and in the corner there was the recruit depot or whatever and so I remember being out there and um, 
I tried to call my brother on the payphone, you know, call his dorm room. And, you know, he was trying to leave college and come, you know, and all this. And I'm like, man, stay where you're at. You know, keep playing football. And uh, which college was he playing? At that time, he was at Coffeyville Community College. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, his situation got derailed as well. He ended up not going to the NFL as a result of that. Mm. But um, I saw some some young people who looked about my age going in and out of this uh, military building it's like a recruiting station uh-huh. yeah and uh and they had they had some food yeah they had little plates you know and they were having like some kind of event over there mm. i needed to eat <laughs> so i went over there i got you know can i get a plate or something yeah they gave me some grapes and some blueberries and stuff and some cake and then you know start asking me questions what's so what you what you what you, what you, what you doing <laughs> did you graduate from high school yeah this and that and I remember uh, my, the recruiter who I ended up being recruited by, he sat me down at his desk. And he had a globe on the desk. And he was like, if you could go anywhere in the world, and it was the perfect thing I needed to hear, if I could get out of here. Mm. you know, He was like, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would it be? And I grabbed that globe, and I put my finger on where we were, and I put my other finger on the other side of the planet. I was like, over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, well, we can get you there. Oh, man. And I was like, well, let's go. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. This was a Navy guy. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, there wasn't any thought process behind it at the time, mm-hmm. but it turned out to be like a master stroke. Yeah. It totally confused the FBI. Describe that for me. Yeah. So... You know, after my dad was removed, the FBI turned up the uh, intensity on me. And let me tell you how the FBI works for the record, if they're watching. <laughs> what the FBI does is they will systematically break break you down. They will start to to uh, they will start to injure different components of your life to coerce you to do things that they want you to do. You know what I mean? Uh, and they'll also engage you with different agents depending on what your psychology or what you're into and all this kind of stuff like that. And so, uh, they finally got me to the point where I, I broke and they were going to have me wear wires and go meet people. And I was going to be a full on informant. Mm. And, um, and then, uh, that night in the middle of the night where the next morning, this was supposed to start is when I, I fled, basically I fled my house and I ended up like just sleeping outside and you know, on the, in the back of the, the gas station in the bushes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, so when I, when I joined the military, well, first of all, I thought that as soon as these guys like do anything with my name, somebody's going to show up here. They're going to kick you out. Be, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I thought that the whole way through from the recruiter station to the bus ride, to the, to the MEP station where they do your physical, to the airport, to Great Lakes, Illinois, to the the military, to boot camp. You know, Where, where'd you do boot camp? In Great Lakes, Illinois. Okay. At the whole time, like, okay, at any moment, yeah, you're gonna somebody's get gonna, yeah, yeah, <laughs> somebody's gonna say you can't be here, and uh, it never happened. It mm-hmm. never happened. Uh, not per se. Uh, it wasn't so. I was in the military now for probably about six months. I had gone through boot camp and now I was in core school. I was a Navy corpsman. It was like a combat medic. I was attached to the Marines. And so 
I was going through core school, which was also in Chicago. And um, they brought us all in this auditorium and they announced that uh, we were about to go to war in Iraq. Mm. And I was like, okay. I was like, yeah, you know what? That's what I need to do. I need to go over there and I need to uh, demonstrate, you know, who I am, who my family is, who we're not, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I actually became really uh, focused and driven on trying to get over to the Middle East and I wanted to enact some damage. Mm. You know what I mean? I actually put in nine requests to go to Iraq mm. and they wouldn't let me go. Interesting. So uh, while we were in that auditorium, these two men come in, the, in there with these dusty suits on, you know what I'm saying? And I see them. To this day, I can spot an agent. I don't, I don't care who you are. You know mm. what I mean? And um, they got to looking around and I, you know, it's 80 people in here, but I see these two guys. I know they're there for me. And I'm like, wow, here it is. And sure enough, they talked to the Lieutenant up there and the Lieutenant's like, point me out, you know, and they're like, Hey, come on. And I come over there. I'm like, what, what, okay. What we gotta do? They're like, come, you know, come get in the car with us. We go get in the car. You want a Gatorade? No. What? What? How's it gonna happen? What's gonna happen now? We'll tell you when we get to the to the building. So they take me to this office. We go in there. They turn out to be NCIS agents, right? <laughs> Naval Criminal <laughs> Investigational Service, like the TV show. Uh, yeah. And um, I'm thinking they're about to explain to me how I'm about to get processed out of the military or whatever, but they don't. They actually start talking to me about uh, working as uh, an agent for NCIS hmm. and approaching targets in the Navy, befriending people, getting information from people and stuff like that. And um, and I, I told them I would do it, but I said, you know, this job that I have in the Navy as a corpsman, I want that to be second. If you want me to do this, like that's what I'm gonna do. And that's gonna be my primary objective. I'm not gonna you're not gonna have me like, you know, in the wind or I'm just some guy on the on the boundary where I just throw you a couple crumbs. Like if you want me to do this, I'm gonna do it. And then I also told them, I'm like, do you guys know about what happened to me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Do you know about my dad? Right. They had no idea. No way. They Serious? had no idea. They had no idea. It's crazy. They had no idea. Huh. Um, and that's when I realized that it's not like the movies. These agencies don't communicate right. with each other. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not. They're siloed off. Yeah, and they yeah. don't talk to each other. It's not as efficient as you think it is. Mm. Uh, they would like you to believe that, but that, that's not the way it is. So after I had told them that, well, then it turned from a recruitment to an investigation. So then they investigated me again in the Navy. Wow. And it was a joint investigation. It was the FBI and NCIS. Interesting. Yeah. And they, you know, they bugged my car and it was, you know, it was all, it, ha- it was happening all over. But again. you didn't get kicked out. No, I, you stayed in the military. Yeah. And then did they finally clear you? So no. So what they do is they put you on these lists, right? And you, everybody. All while you're active military. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So while I was active, um, I ended up, I passed the uh, Navy SEAL NDOC exam 
to go to BUDS, basic underwater demolition seal training. And when I passed that, they were like, you can't, you can't do that. They want you to be a seal. Yeah. They were like, ah, you know, while you're, uh, under investigation, you, you can't be going to any other schools. You got to stay here. You know what I mean? All, that was the, that was the excuse that they gave me. Um, and then when it came time for me to, to rotate out of, uh, Camp Pendleton where I was in California, uh, I got sent to Japan, which was like as far away from the Middle East as, as they could get me, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I was on a deployment list to go to Iraq once and then they took me off of that. And so this when I realized that there was a, a grander scheme to this. And this is when I started to understand that whatever list I'm on, this list is going to start to dictate my life. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and, and it did. So I had never committed a crime. I would never, would never detain in suspicion or nothing like that. So they couldn't put me out of the military because I had never done anything. So I was able to finish my career honorably, no problems. Um, How long did you serve? I did five years. Five, okay. Yeah, five years. Yeah, and um, and that's when I got the idea to, you know, to go into the the heart of where this was coming from. So I immediately started working for the government. I got out of the military, used my GI Bill, educated myself, started building my resume up so I could get a job in the government. Because the idea was is that if I could get a top secret clearance, right, that would mean that the government would have to reevaluate my background. They would have to reevaluate me, my family, et cetera. And if we're not guilty of anything, then there's no reason why I should be denied a top secret clearance. Hmm. And it ended up taking me almost 15 years to get a top secret clearance. Really? But I did it. Wow. And that's ultimately what cleared the table. Interesting. Yeah. My gosh. So you, so you jumped in, you started working on bachelors. Yeah. So I came, actually came here to Kansas city, went to Avila. Okay. Yeah. I noticed you were at Avila and then you yep. were what at uh, Webster Webster. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you did a bachelor of science. Yep. Did a and international business. And then I did a dual masters at Webster and international relations and uh mba okay yeah wow yeah and i got to travel around because i knew that you know in order to have a resume that could even get you in the door for an interview of one of these top secret joints you know you gotta you get your resume's gotta be mm -hmm. you gotta have someone on your resume yeah yeah so where did what what job did you end up getting with government that had top Clearance. I was an intelligence officer with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Yeah. And where were you stationed at? In D.C. Okay. Yeah. And then you traveled it mostly in the former Soviet Union, like you were traveling in. I, I was doing that traveling before I got the job. So okay. that, was, that was part of my, part of the pipeline. So I did this mm -hmm. program. It's called the Bourne Fellowship. Yeah, it's called a Born for You can look it up. They After have, Jason Bourne. They got a website. Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, named after a guy, uh, David L. Bourne. Uh, I forget what he was. I, I believe he was a congressman or a senator, but he was big in um, 
he understood like how valuable it was to have people in the government in these agencies who had actual experience in these countries and with the languages. And so he started the fellowship uh, years ago and it's been funded ever since. So I did that um, and I, I was supposed to go to Russia and I actually got, I got accepted into like the University of Moscow. And at first, you know, they were talking to me about all this money and all this kind of like what the payments were and everything like that. But then um, they wanted to know what program I was under uh, that was funding this study abroad. And when I told them, I asked the folks at Bourne, am I supposed to be telling these people? That? And they were like, yeah, this is, we're not, we're not clandestine. We're open, right? We have a website. Mm. So I told the folks in Moscow that I was uh, in this Bourne Fellowship. And then suddenly they were like, hey, it's free. <laughs> Just come over here. <laughs> and like three weeks after that, then the, the folks at, at Bourne, um, they were like, okay, nobody's going to Russia. Hmm. You know, if you want to study Russian, you're going to have to go to another country that speaks Russian. And so that's how I ended up in Kazakhstan. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Man, what a journey. Um, yeah. So you, you are, how long did you work for the government? Oh, I still work for the government. You still are. Yeah. But I'm not, okay. I'm not in the intelligence community anymore though. Okay. Yeah. So what brought you back to Kansas city after living in DC? Movies. Movies. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. So uh, this takes quite a turn here. All of a yeah. sudden you go from military, high intelligence, top yeah. secret clearance to yeah. writer, director, movies. Yeah. Script yeah. writer, essays, yep, novels, yep. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I don't even know what I wanted to do or be when I was younger because this happened at at a time where I was probably still trying to figure that out, and so I ended up dedicating, you know, twenty years to this process of trying to uh, reverse what had occurred to my family, what had happened to my family after nine eleven, and once I was able to confirm that my my need to be in the intelligence community and do all that stuff it just didn't exist anymore mm. and it felt great i was like okay. you know what i'm done yeah like because i never even wanted to be here anyway yeah Interesting. Um, yeah so you know that's what i i just quit i like hey two weeks i'm out of here okay yeah and, and that was it why why kansas city in movies what's well, you know, my, my aunt is here. Um, and like I said, you know, uh, I lived here periodically throughout my life. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I don't know, you know, I think, I think most of it has to do with my aunt, you know, after my mother died, she's my mom's older sister. And um, she's been pretty much the only mother figure I've ever had. And I think that's what's just kept me around the area. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So you land in Kansas City, what year? Uh, so I, I came here after the military first and, um, but after, after you left DC. Oh, so yeah, I came back in uh, 2020 December. Wow. This okay. just happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I came December back in 2020. Yep. So pandemic. Yep. Moving here. Yep. And that, and how did you kick off a writing directing career? So I, I, I was in Kansas city before I went to DC. I was here working for uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and I was still going through this 
this battle with these federal agencies to get this top tier clearance. Mm. I went to everybody. Who was your boss at the urban? Urban development, uh, Gregory King. Gregory ever, King. You ever meet Gerald Sewell? Gerald Sewell. Just curious. Doesn't sound familiar. I probably came across him. He, he worked there years ago. I don't know if he's still there. He probably retired now, but anyway, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> Friend of mine. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, used to, used to be in a morning prayer thing with him oh anyway so i just curious yeah. i don't know if he, i haven't haven't been in touch with him in a lot of years but mm -hmm. yeah so yeah so yeah i um you know i was trying to get into everything secret service uh state department you know you name it mm -hmm. and so you know the secret service I made it all the way through all of those process. I passed this test, you know, they got this weird exam you take and it's, it's really psychologically funky and stuff is all crazy. I passed that, did all this other stuff they want you to do. And the last step to get into the secret service is a, they call it a factor five interview, factor V. And it's basically where you sit down with the, the administrator and he's got like a, a document called an SF-186, and it's like 150 pages of your whole life. Wow. You know and he's and he just goes into a conversation about basically different points of your life, and, and then he makes like a decision. And he determined that, you know, if there's any question, he has to side on the side of national security. Um, so they didn't allow me into the Secret Service. It's like some of these other federal agencies didn't allow me a top secret clearance either so what i would do then is i would file a freedom of information act request so i could get the document that has an actual reason why um and the secret service one of the reasons that they put there was that i had known ties to terrorism oh wow yeah <laughs> so now i take that and then i send it i write congress and i'm like hey if i'm sitting in the office with the secret service and they say i got known ties to terrorism and they're not arresting me right then do i have known ties to terrorism or not <laughs> and I, I finally wore the government down until they had no they there was no other reason they didn't have any more reasons left mm -hmm. they ran out of reasons where they where they could deny me mm. and that's how i ended up getting my clearance yeah yeah all right so kansas yeah. city yeah 2020 you've been yep. here a couple years yeah um yeah so I came in and, um, you know, I did a project with KCPD. Okay. You know, um, after Michael Brown was killed in St. Louis, I found out that I was related to him distantly. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I was thinking about all the stuff I had been doing in all these other countries, you know, exploring all these cultures and communities, but I wasn't doing that at home. Mm -hmm. So I decided to take this, this approach that, the government uses to engage all these people all over the world, but they don't use it to engage people here. Mm -hmm. And I took that strategy and I tried to engage the city. Mm. And and if there's anything I've learned from my experience is is how to deal with an agency or or a bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And so you know I approached KCPD. I studied their strategic goals and objectives so I could understand, you know, how to talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I approached them with this project, you know, film project. And, um, you know, and then I had to engage the African-American community. And it took 
you know, 35 meetings over like eight months before these two demographics got to a point where they felt comfortable going forward with a, uh, a creative endeavor. Yeah. What ex- describe that to us? So it was, um, you know, we, we wanted to, we wanted the community and the police to have a conversation through music, African-American community, the African-American community. Yeah. Okay. And the Kansas city. Yeah. Police department. Yep. And, and we specifically, we wanted a police officer that was, uh, within five years of their career, uh, who had been in the military, who doesn't live in the community that, that they police and who was not African-American. Um, those first two criteria, the five years within five years and prior military, those two, um, points there. If you look up the data on police officers that are involved in shootings, the majority of them are guys like that who they're within five years in their prior military. They're Hmm. like 1.8 times more likely to have a, uh, an engagement with a firearm than other police officers are. Really? Yeah. And so we wanted a, a police officer that was in that threshold. Interesting. Yeah. And you found? And we found, yeah. Nate. Nate. Nate Harper. Yeah. Is that, is that, what's his last name? Harper. Harper. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You want to know what's crazy? So, and so by the way, Nate, I was Nate's pastor <laughs> <laughs> and Matt Cox ended up being on this video project. And yeah. so, and then that's, that's a little bit of why you're here right now. So anyway, <laughs> you want to know something else that's wild. Nate and I, we were in the Navy together. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Nate was stationed in Iwakuni, Japan. And he came, he got to Iwakuni probably about a month before my term at Iwakuni was up. Mm-hmm. But we came across each other at a Halloween party one time. And I didn't realize it in until, Japan. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it wasn't until, uh, and this was in 2007, it wasn't until we we did the video, mm-hmm. we put it out. What's the name of the video? It's called Disarmed. Disarmed, and you can yeah. just type that in on YouTube Yeah, and watch this video, and it, you yeah. did it with a rapper? Yep. Which, what's his name? Yeah, Spades Lund. Okay. Uh, he's a spoken word poet, um, and we asked him to to rap on this and then we we got nathan and we wanted to record this track in the community that nathan patrols Mm -hmm. so we did it it was in south kansas city Mm. we're like in the basement of this guy's house you know yeah you know smells like weed and stuff in there and everything (laughs) but it it was good And, and the people who were there they were they were so excited and supportive of Nate to get, you know, cause he had never made a rap song before. Mm-hmm. Um, but the support that and the camaraderie that happened in that basement, it was, you know, it was, it, it was so uh, amazing that, you know, we forgot to turn the cameras on and record what was happening. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause I, I just couldn't believe it. Like mm. wa- watching this, mm. you know? And so I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, I saw him wrapping it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. 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 And so from there, cool. you know, I, um, I developed this concept uh, that I call Sapiens. It's a superhero uh, concept. And it's basically um, 
where artists are superheroes and their their superpowers is manifested through their artistic ability. Mm-hmm. And it's an idea for a feature film that I'd like to shoot in Kansas City, and it would include all of the local artists in the city. It would showcase all of their talents, mm. uh, and then hopefully, you know, elevate everyone's yeah. careers. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, I'm curious, where like where's your faith now? Are you still a part of the the Muslim world, or does, nah. is there what? Where's your so is there not not along, but just just because I want to. I've read a few of your articles. Yeah, like I've in a. I want you to mention affection of a tiger. Mm-hmm. I just you just had a an article pu- published with the Boston Globe just a few months ago, mm-hmm. what, six months ago maybe. Yep, November. And called "My Child Seeks a Brown Panther" because yeah. your son's a little, uh, white skin. Yeah, or a light skin. Light skin. Yeah. Light skin, and um, he was asking about uh, if he would be able to be a part of the yeah, yeah, community. Yeah, the Wakanda. Wakanda. Yeah, the black. Pan- anyway, I, yeah. I want to hit a little bit of that too. So, but just. Give us a quick, like, where where's your faith journey taking I, you now? I believe in a higher power, um, but I don't nece- necessarily prescribe to a route to get there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what was really an eye-opener for me after being raised in an Islamic community was when I started to travel around the world. I've traveled to 52 countries. Wow. And in each one of these countries, I would always be curious about the Muslims there. Yes. So I would just kind of drop in on them, just see what's going on. Yeah. And I, I've encountered Muslims in Cuba, China, you know, Central Asia, you know, Uzbekistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, you know, these places like that. Japan, mm-hmm. um, you know, England, you know, Canada. I've, I've interacted with Muslims in places where I don't know. I don't know any other Muslims who've interacted with the diversity of Muslims I have. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one thing that that struck me about these different folks is that in most cases they were they were they were Muslim, but they were also still themselves. Mm-hmm. And see, and that doesn't happen for African Americans um, because the way Islam was presented to us was through the lens of you know you basically have to imitate an Arab. So I understand that. You know, Sunni Muslims they follow they follow the Sunnah, the practices and habits of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, but I'm not an Arab, right. so how can you know? Am I not able to approach Allah as I as I am? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and really, from the Arab perspective, really the answer is no. You know, and they're very keen on the fact that you know. It has to be in Arabic. Arabic can't leave the page, and I I look at that as more of yeah. a more of a cultural constraint and not necessarily yeah. a uh, constraint of the faith. So that so that's where I am. That kind of just made me stand back away from just taking a a particular stance based on another other men telling me that this is how it's supposed yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read the Quran and in an English translation, mm-hmm. which when I'm talking to, you know, my Arab Muslim friends is I haven't really read it yet. <laughs> yeah. 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 You got to read it in Arabic right. to really know what you're to really encounter it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
So, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So um, you did a, a little bit of an autobiography that covers some of this ground. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's, I actually tried to look it up on uh, Amazon Prime. Yeah. And it, the title was there, but it said it wasn't available right now, but it's called Affection of a Tiger. Yeah. And it's your autobiography. Yeah. But it's a film. Yeah. Like it's short. It's like a short. 15, it's 20 minutes? Five, five minutes. Oh, five minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. But it tells just, this is what we just talked about in an hour. You did it in five minutes kind of a thing. Was this is, so I, that actually is what got me into filmmaking. So um, a friend of mine just, he was like, you know, it was a guy I was in the military where he's a former Navy SEAL. Um, he actually came to Kansas City last year in, in June and July and we shot a movie. So uh, he was like, hey, you know, you should take your life story and you should make it into a screenplay. I was like, how you do that? Mm -hmm. He's like, get on YouTube. So I got on YouTube, wrote a screenplay. And I just, you know, followed the format and then just wrote some things that happened. And then I submitted that to a national screenwriting competition mm -hmm. at BET. Ended up placing in the top 10. Yeah, I saw that. Like second, weren't you? Yeah. Second place. Yeah. And so BET. The Black Entertainment Network. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so BET wanted the top 10 people to... Um, shoot a five minute scene from your script. Mm -hmm. And so that was the, the scene okay. that I shot. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And that, that was my introduction into filmmaking. Yeah. And well, congratulations, man. That's cool. Yeah. Man, you've done a lot in a, in a short period of time. Yeah. Um, this article with the Boston Globe, my child seeks a brown panther. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, uh, that was a, Real profound moment for me because you know, because your son's what 12, 13? Yeah, he's 12 now. 12? Yep. And so, you know, my wife is Japanese. We met when I was in Japan in the okay. military. And, um, you know, I'm not like a huge, uh, you know, I'm definitely down with the cause, you know what I mean? But my perspective is a lot different, you know, just because of what my experience have been. Mm -hmm. um, but I do carry those elements uh, in my interaction with my children. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so they're very aware of the history and they're very cognizant of what could be happening to them mm -hmm. in certain situations based on skin color and all that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I took them to watch Black Panther from, you know, the standpoint of this empowerment piece, what the, the piece means to the, the, mm -hmm. the black and African diaspora. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And you know, my son, he really didn't say nothing after the movie, you know, and I'm asking questions. I'm like, did you see that? Did you understand why when they walked in the, in the scene where they had to fight in the bar, T'Challa had on black and then one of the girls had on red, the other one had on green. Do you know what that is? That's the flag. That's the Pan-African flag. It was a lot of messaging in that film. Ethiopia colors too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or why uh, Killmonger, you know, he broke the spear, you know, this is like uh, mm -hmm. Shaka Zulu, you know? Yep. And so I'm talking to them about all that stuff. And then when we got home, we sat down at the table and, and he was like, dad, if I wanted to live in Wakanda, would my skin need to be darker? And that just blew the whole, it just, yeah. The, the whole point of, you know, pushing for this quote unquote, uh, black experience for me, in my opinion, is is lost on my son because whatever my experience is or whatever my perception is, it's not his. 
Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Yeah. And there I, I love you had a sentence in that Boston Globe. You said, I've surrendered to his reality, your son's. Yeah. By not imposing mine. Yeah. I thought that was pretty profound. Yeah. Like uh I mean, all of us could practice that with everybody that we encounter, right? Yeah. Because it's so easy to Yeah. We, I think yeah. it's natural in us. You but, want yeah, people especially to a parent agree. to a child, right? Right. You know. Yeah. That's a tricky one. It is. Yeah. It is. You know, people are so um and it's the same conversation, you know, that's happening across the country now with the CRT stuff and all that. Mm -hmm. People are very afraid of their children's ideology flying out of their hands, mm -hmm. you know, and they're really trying to hold it, you know, and cage it like a bird. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that moment, you know, I realized that I really just have to allow my son to just fly. He has to be able to uh, experience life in a way that's good for him. Yeah. You know, his experience with race in America yeah. is not going to be your experience with exactly. race in America. Exactly. So why would I, yeah. why it's would so I tell him though? Yeah. But you want yeah. him to understand and appreciate your experience. Right. For exactly. sure. Right. Yeah. 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 So interesting. Yeah. All right. And then you, you had this other piece. I, we're going to, we're, we're, I want to take just a couple more minutes here, but the African-American mythology yeah. little piece. Yeah. You know, because I, of course, with me being my whole, all my education is in theology and religion. And yeah. of course that, that always crosses over into mythology as well. Right. Absolutely. Because so many, uh, so much of our religion has a mythic yeah. component to it. Right. Right. Yeah. And then you were, what, tell me, just to give me a, a little nutshell of this African, yeah. what you're thinking on, what's so, your thoughts on this African-American mythology thing? So for, from a cultural standpoint, you know, um, every civilization has a mythology and, you know, there's a process that it develops from superstition to folklore to legend, you know, and it goes all the way up. By the time you get to mythology, that's where civilization happens. Religion comes from, from that conversation, politics, education. Corporation. Corporation. <laughs> it does, right? Yeah. Nike, yeah. It, it's in everything. Have you read it's Sapiens? Uh, I haven't. Okay, but he has I a haven't. chapter on this, on really? mythology. You, you, should just, you should just read that chapter. And uh, he's I'm a Jewish that. dude that wrote yeah. this book, Sapiens. It came out in 2015, but it's really fascinating read. But he has a whole chapter on mythology, basically. I need to check it out. Yeah, yeah. It's well, good. And you're you saying know, the same thing, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because of my travel around the world, I'm very I'm looking at all these cultures and what what mythology does is mythology establishes your place in the world. Mm -hmm. And this is why you see, you know, uh, you know, Jews say Moses did it. The covenant is here. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Christians say Jesus did it. Mm -hmm. They, you know, painted pictures of Jesus look like them. Muslims say the Prophet Muhammad did it. He's of their line. Mm -hmm. Everybody claims connection uh, to the divine source. Everybody does. You go to Japan. I lived in Japan for five years. When they developed Shintoism, the emperor sent out scribes all over the country to collect all of the stories of all the villages about their beliefs, their deities, etc. When they brought all those back, then they developed a creation myth that put the emperor 
at the top of everybody else's stuff, yeah. right? So this is a, a human uh, response mm -hmm. to the world around them, both nature and people. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it really establishes uh, your, your frame of reference mm -hmm. in the world that you live in. And that's what allows you to go forward. Yeah. Well, African-Americans, we don't have that. We don't have that. Marvel and all that stuff, that's a, a European-American mythological construct. And it's very effective. It does exactly what, is, what mythology is intended to do. It's intended to inspire behavior, uh, values, et cetera, within the community that, that the mythology represents, mm -hmm. right? And when you don't have that, right, you don't have a reference point. And so I think African-Americans, uh, I think, you know, we lack something that as a cultural community, we could say definitively, uh, we agree with this and we're going to just say that this is our reference yeah. point. It's, you know I mean? it's so interesting that, you know, because so many blacks in America adopted white man's religion, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the black church in America has really sustained the people through slavery, yeah. through, you know, the, the segregation era yep. Um, yep. and through the civil rights movement. Yep. And uh, like I've, I've gone, I've gone since I hadn't been pastor in my church, I've been attending a black church mm. in Kansas city and have gone through two black history months in a black church now. <laughs> Yeah. As a white guy, you know, yeah. one of the very few white guys in it. But it's been fascinating to see yeah. how the in the themes, you know, so they I mean, they when they talk about slavery, you know, e easy goes right back to Egypt. Right. Mm -hmm. And then moving out of slavery in there. And so right. this, this so they sing kind of the gospel of freedom. Jesus is, you know, taking yeah. you from bondage and the freedom is right. a part of the story that they've integrated and how they've adopted this this Jewish and then Christian uh, tradition, right. Yeah. To yeah. sustain that part. But then you had other people like Malcolm X who rejected that, took the Muslim story and tried right. to adapt that to black America. Yeah. And, the nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. did, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it's, it's just a fascinating, um, it's, it's so fascinating. I think it is, know? but I and think, then, I think where the, the limit is though, uh, with anything that's that the African-American community is dealing with, there's always a limitation to it. You know what I mean? Like you mentioned black history month. Mm -hmm. If I ask the average, which I do, you know, I go to the barbershop. This is where African-Americans hold counsel. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> and I ask these guys, I'm like, what's the most significant event in African-American history or, you know, and everybody's going to talk about, you know, the Martin Luther Kings and George Washington Carver and the Frederick Douglasses and all this kind of stuff like that. Um, what they're not going to talk about is like, for example, the freed African-Americans that left the United States and they settled and established the country of Liberia was established by freed African-Americans. They actually went back to Africa, purchased land and started their own country. I would think that that would be the most significant event of African-American history, mm. right? Or a guy named 
Oliver Golden, who was George Washington Carver's classmate at the Tuskegee Institute. Oliver Golden was to cotton what George Washington Carver was to peanuts. Oliver Golden was also one of the wealth, one of the most wealthiest free blacks in U.S. history. And um, in the early 1920s, he renounced his U.S. citizenship. He moved to what was then the U.S. USSR. And they placed him in what is today Uzbekistan. And he went over there and he did what he knew how to do. He grew cotton. And to this day, those five countries, those stands, uh, well, four, not Afghanistan, those countries' economies are sustained off, off the cotton that they produce, that this man yeah, brought over there. And the reason you don't learn about Oliver Golden is because he left. Yeah. Right? So you're only going to learn about the people who assimilated or were killed. Yeah. And that's how our education system works. It's it's so interesting. Um, I'm, I'm in a clergy group with, uh, it's a pretty mixed group. It's got African-American pastors, rabbis, and white pastors, basically, and one, one Buddhist guy. All right. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, my, my black pastor said something to my rabbi, Jewish rabbi friend that caught my Jewish rabbi friend's attention. And it says like, what if, what if when you guys, you know, were freed from Egypt, uh-huh. what if you had to stay in Egypt? Ooh. and live as free people that, still in Egypt. Yeah. Was it, was it better to be freed and then leave Egypt mm-hmm. and then, you know, start your own deal. Right. Country. Yeah. Kind of what you're referring to versus yeah. like in my, my black pastor friends thought was like, you know, we, we got freed, but we had to stay <laughs> and yeah. live among the people who were still in charge of everything. Right? Yeah. And, uh, any rate, interesting. Yeah. It, it is because that, that's what I think. E- even if you look at like these the Marvel stuff, right? Mm-hmm. When Superman has a problem, the world has a problem. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The world has a problem. Mm-hmm. Captain America's problem is the world's problem, right? You know, uh, T'Challa's problem was Wakanda's problem. Yeah, it, and I then see what you're and then in the next movie a purple guy from outer space turns him into dust. <laughs> this, this was the pan-African hero that film moved black people to an extent around the world, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually that hadn't, that has not been seen probably since slavery. Mm. A movie did that. Yeah. And then in the very next film, they vaporize him and it's because it's not his world. He doesn't, he's not a, and this, these are the limitations that I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what led me to this African American mythology. Piece. Yeah. 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 I, it's so fascinating. I could go on forever on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's good stuff. Yeah. Um, I just had lunch, uh, just a few days ago with a friend of mine who's African American from Louisiana. Mm-hmm. He's about 70, grew up drinking out of black drinking fountains, having to go to, you know, black, you know, very yeah. segregated Louisiana. And he went to football, Houston University, but then kind of got in the gangs and then, oh, you yeah. know, ended up at, at manager clinic over in Topeka and got out of the whole gang world and the drug world and all that kind of stuff. And 
ended up uh, edu- getting educated, masters, count, you know, super sharp guy. And then they ended up developing a program for the NFL to, to work with counsel these young, you know, kids that come into the NFL. Also, they're millionaires and yeah, and uh, but they're they're from you know they're from pretty pretty rough. They, they rough got areas. a they got a they got a crew with them, you know, when they're yeah. coming in, and they, <laughs> not not always the positive thing. So anyway, he's been he's been working with the NFL for for decades uh, with young NFL players and uh, has a really fascinating perspective on you know because you got the white owned NFL, yeah, and then you got seventy percent of the players black that are black you and, know. and coming from former slave states isn't that crazy <laughs> yeah so he so his perspective on all this is so we we, we spent two hours talking you know uh-huh. but i've known him for a long time but uh, yeah i want to get a podcast with him because he's got such a there's a movie his dad was a part of the deacons of defense which was because which was a black uh they they weren't like martin luther king jr because they decided to arm themselves against oh. But they, you know, but they they weren't they weren't trying to be offensively, but they were like defending their neighborhoods and and yeah. Force Whitaker's plays in that movie. Oh, really? It was, it was, it was not a big release. Yeah. And he says this it. was what my dad helped start. And he that when I very first time I met him, he he gave me that movie Deacons of Defense, and this wow. is this is where I came from, you know. Oh, I'm gonna check that out. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, man, we got to close it. This is this is probably my longest interview oh, I've ever yeah. done. It's so fascinating. We could go on and on. Yeah. Man, well, so cool. Um, so, people, if they want to check you out, your website is what? It's a uh, my first and last name together. So www.khalidabdulkadir.com. It's K H A L I D. A B D U L Q A A D I R dot com. I probably should have shortened it. <laughs> yeah, I probably should have shortened it, but you know. And your your Instagram's the same, yeah, under the same name. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so and you've got links to stuff that yeah. you've done there, yeah, either on your website or your Instagram, so they can kind of yep. check all this stuff out. And then when's this? Why why couldn't I see the? Uh, because I went to Amazon Prime to look at the affection of the tiger, and it yeah. wasn't available. So Amazon, they and I, they just they changed some of their protocol. Uh, I think a year or two ago, where these independent films, they decided that they're not going to allow them to play anymore or whatever. Ah. So I just need to go in there and just remove the little title card and everything. But if you if you search affection of a tiger, it's still public on Vimeo. Vimeo. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Khalid, for being on Spirituality Adventures. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then Go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.